Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew, for inviting me and trusting me with your community. What a joy to be with a community that's not my usual church community, but to feel such a sense of um, unity in heart, such a sense of family as we worship Jesus together. It's a, it's a real joy and privilege to be here with you. Uh, and I'm really trusting that Jesus is going to meet with us in a remarkable way this morning. Um, I'm going to have to really focus to say this morning because our church is an afternoon church. And I've got into the habit of saying this afternoon. So if I get confused, don't worry. It's uh, Time hasn't suddenly sped up and you haven't missed your lunch. It's just that I'm in an afternoon church community. Um, we're going to, well, before I do anything else, let me just say, I've got an incredible team here with me. Sophie, Noel, and Sophia have joined me this morning, and um, they're going to be around afterwards too when there's ministry time. We just would love to pray with you. So I am um, glad to have more than myself just here from the table Boston representing. We are going to jump into Luke 10 together. As I was um, just thinking about what uh, I felt the Lord had on his heart for this time together, um, I felt God uh, just pointing me to a message around confidence in prayer. And I know that you guys have been fasting and praying. I love the rhythms that your community are going through. Um, it's, It's been really great actually this morning learning from you and receiving grace from this house. And um I really felt just as I was praying around the season that you've been in, that the Lord wanted to uh, pour extra strength into the confidence uh, with which you pray. And so we're going to use Luke 10 as a little bit of a springboard uh, for for looking at this topic together. I'm going to be reading from the ESV translation, and I'm going to start at verse 38. Let's hope, I don't have any glasses with me, let's hope I'll be able to see the tiny little print on my Bible. Luke 10, 38. Now as they, Jesus and his disciples, went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, prayer is not a practice, it's not a process, it's leading us to a person. Father, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or his perseverance, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, 
Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That one phrase can probably define all of these verses that we're reading. How much more? I pray that the revelation of the heart of the Father that is much more than we can ask or imagine will be deeply sealed in our hearts today. Let's keep reading. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Wouldn't you think casting out a demon that made a mute man mute would be a sign? But anyway, (laughs) these guys need more. But he, knowing their thoughts, Jesus often has conversations with our thoughts. It's helpful for us to recognize that, that our hearts are open to him. And he's wanting to speak to us, not just the religious phrases that we know how to say, but the deepest beliefs and areas of woundedness in our hearts. Those are the places he wants to have conversations with. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul or Satan. And if I cast out demons by Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The great revivalist Leonard Ravenhill, who wrote a book called Why Revival Tarries, if you've never read it, I recommend it. It's, it's a wild read. He says this, no man is greater than his prayer life. And you know, sometimes in the church, we can, we can kid ourselves through our experience, through our talents, uh, through our charisma, uh, through our human capability of communication, that we're being really successful in the Christian life. Leaders, uh, we can kid ourselves. I can kid myself that uh, I've got 20 years odd of preaching now. Experience will get you so far. Experience will help you put together a decent sermon. Experience will help you feel peaceful when you're standing in front of a congregation. Uh, Your talent in communication will help you communicate well, even to the point of pulling heartstrings. And yet the Bible says in John 15 that we can do nothing apart from abiding in Jesus. We can do nothing outside of intimacy with Jesus. Leonard Ravenhill is not exaggerating when he says no man or woman is greater than his prayer life because what he's saying is true fruitfulness goes vastly beyond your skill set, your talents, your experience. Those things will might show a surface level of success. The reality is you will never have fruitfulness in the kingdom of God without intimacy, without walking with Jesus, and therefore without your prayer life, because your prayer life is all about intimacy. I don't know about you, but I find this provoking. 
I find this provoking as a pastor because it's so easy as a pastor to get professional and to rely on what are your human strengths rather than recognizing if I have stepped out of intimacy with Jesus, if I am not hearing His voice, if my prayer life is not stirring something of the Spirit within me, then I might look on the surface like I'm successful. But if I do, it's because we use the wrong metrics. But deep down, am I truly being fruitful in the kingdom? That will be limited by my prayer life. It's a provocation. See, what you've been doing in fasting and prayer isn't just because it's a good idea or Andrew thought, come on, this will make the church more spiritual. No, no, what you were doing is increasing your pace and fruitfulness in the kingdom because you're stirring and sowing and growing deep roots of intimacy. And without Him, you can do nothing. But when you fast and pray, when you draw deep from the spiritual river of God, you find fruit abounds on the riverbanks. No man is greater than his prayer life. And I find it so fascinating that the disciples go to Jesus and they ask him to teach them something. This is the only time we see his disciples asking them specifically to teach them something. I find that fascinating. They've been watching Jesus be the best preacher there was. They've been watching Jesus heal the sick. They've been watching Jesus cast out demons. They've been watching Jesus do the most wild, crazy, insane miracles. Five loaves, two fish becomes food for thousands. Yet they never ask Him, teach us to do the miracles. They never ask Him, teach us to pray, uh, to preach like you do so that we'll have the Instagram following of John Tyson too. They never ask Him, I love John, I'm just joking. They never ask Him to teach them anything other than prayer. Don't you find that fascinating? If you had time with a miracle worker, would you ask Him to teach you to pray or to ask Him to teach you to do miracles? I wonder if the disciples recognized something about prayer that taught them that if you learn how to pray, you'll learn how to preach. If you learn how to pray, you'll learn how to cast out demons. If you learn how to pray, you'll learn how to do miracles. If you learn how to pray, you'll learn how to heal the sick because no man is greater than his prayer life. I want Jesus to teach me how to pray. And I wanna say right on the outset of this sermon, this sermon is not about try harder. No amount of trying is gonna deliver you. No amount of trying is gonna make you better. That's not the gospel of grace. This sermon is about saying, hey, I don't have the prayer life I, I really want when I read these verses because I think, gosh, I want so much more. And you might be in that same place. And the key to this sermon is ask. Ask, ask him. Say like the disciples, teach me how to pray. I often ask him this, teach me, teach me how to pray. He is the greatest teacher. He knows how to lead his children who ask. And so if I leave you with one thing today, it's not try harder, but it's to start at the place of asking him to teach you. But when they asked Jesus to teach them, that, that really says something to me about Jesus in that he was a man of prayer. You don't go to someone who you've never seen do something and ask them to teach you to do it. I'm not gonna to go to Andrew and ask him to teach me how to do abdominal surgery. Bad idea, I think. I don't think, as far as I'm aware, that he's ever done it. And so you don't go to someone who's never done something, who wouldn't know how, or maybe only has a theoretical knowledge Right? So I'm not gonna to go to a medical student who's just taken classes on abdominal surgery and think they know what they're doing, let them show me. No, no, they've learned it, they've not done it. You're gonna to go to someone who not only has theoretical knowledge, but has practical experience in what you ask them to teach you, right? So if I'm gonna be a medical student, I'm not gonna learn from another medical student. I'm gonna to go to a doctor who's actually done the training, surpassed the training, and now practices what they trained in so that they can teach me how to do what they already do. When the disciples go to Jesus and say, teach us to pray, it's not because they thought he had a theoretical understanding of the value of prayer. It's because they were with him day and night and they knew this man is a man of prayer. I want to ask you, what do people ask you to teach them? I want to ask myself, 
You know, preachers don't preach because they've attained perfection on the thing they preach on. We often preach through what we're wrestling with. Jesus, who's, who's asking me, Katya, won't you teach me to pray? This isn't to make us feel bad. This is to provoke us forward. I want to be a woman who so embodies prayer that people who are around me know, oh no, she doesn't just get it theologically. She doesn't just have some theoretical assent to prayer because she's a pastor, so she has to. This is a woman who prays. This is a woman who prays. I have been taught to pray by men and women of incredible prayer. And there's something so fiery where you just spend time with someone else who is a real prayer warrior and you just pray with them. I'm not asking them to teach me the theoretical um, sense of prayer. What's the process here? I'm saying, won't you pray and I'll come and sit and pray alongside you. That's the best way to catch the fire for prayer. Find someone who prays, pray with them. It really isn't rocket science. Jesus prayed alone. He prayed in public. He, play, he prayed with his small group of disciples. He prayed in front of thousands when he multiplies food, he stands in front of them, owning his relationship with the Father and has a public prayer moment. He prays in the morning, he prays late at night. He prays before miracles, he prays after miracles. He prays in a very private way, he prays in a very public way. He prays before things that he is afraid of. He prays after incredible victories. He's a man of prayer. He's praying. And the thing is, not only did the disciples ask him, to teach them how to pray because he was a man of prayer. They asked him to teach them how to pray because they recognized prayer is, uh, prayer is powerful. You don't go to someone who you see is on a diet that is the opposite of working. <laughs> and say to them, you know what? I've been really figuring out. I need to get toned. I need, I need to lose some weight. Won't you teach me how to do the diet that you're doing? right? We don't do that. Why? Because we're not in the habit, unless we, we like wasting our time, but most human beings are not in the habit of asking to learn something that is certifiably not working. We find something else. Oh, this diet is clearly not doing what it's meant to be doing. So I'm going to stop this diet and I'm going to do another one, right? If I'm on a diet and I'm gaining weight on it, what does that tell me? Stop and do something else. So I want to say when the disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray, it's not only because they've witnessed that he is a man of prayer, but they've witnessed that prayer is the master key of everything else. They're recognizing prayer does something. Prayer is the source of everything else that he does. Prayer is your master key. You know what? The enemy knows that prayer is the master key and he tries to keep you from prayer all the time, distracting you, overwhelming you, creating anxiety in you, even to the point of much serving. We'll come to Martha in a second. Leaders, I want to say to you, your much serving is one of the biggest dangers to your fruitfulness in ministry. Because if you allow your serving to distract you from your intimacy, you are going to run dry before it's time. but they understood there's something of this master key. Prayer is not boring. I promise you, every time you start engaging with God, something is happening in the heavenly realm. Don't allow the enemy to lie to you, to say to you, this is pointless, this is boring. You could be doing so many better things. I promise you, every second you spent sowing in prayer, your power goes up. It's something remarkable because the grace of God is working in our hearts and the presence of the Spirit is the presence of the power of God. You can't afford not to pray. Not because somehow in prayer we earn the approval of God. Come on, he who did not spare his son from us will not hold back on anything else. Prayer is not earning, prayer is privilege. Prayer is the most incredible invitation of intimacy with God himself. What is prayer? This is all by way of introduction. I promise we're gonna get there and I'll be quick. But let's just quickly talk just for a second for clarity. What is prayer? Because I see in myself and in many others that sometimes prayer sounds much more like a ransom demand list than a dialogue. In the Bible, prayer is not meant to be a monologue, it's a dialogue. 
is two ways. I loved so much of what I've seen in the team already. Even in the prayer before service, there was a whole time of let's just wait to listen before we pray. I love that because prayer is a dialogue. He is speaking. It's not me as some kind of kidnapper picking up the phone, barking out my ransom demand list and putting the phone down. Do it or else. Bye. But that's sometimes what describes our prayers. God, I'm here to pray. I want this, 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 this. Bless my day, bless my family, amen. Tell me that that's not like a kidnapper demanding their orders. I don't wanna hear from you until you've done it. And when he doesn't, inevitably, somehow dance to our tune, we get offended by him and don't wanna speak to him anymore. You've misunderstood prayer. Prayer is a conversation. It's an openness to his presence. In John 15, Jesus says, let my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What that tells me is when his words speak first, the prayers that result from that lead to much fruitfulness. If you're struggling with your prayer life because you think God never answers me, I wanna ask you, are you hearing him before you pray? Are you asking him what his thoughts are? He is wiser than I am. I want him to teach me how to pray. I wanna hear the voice of the Spirit of God. This is why we cannot shut the Holy Spirit out of our lives and out of our churches. We must hear from the Spirit because he speaks to us the voice of the Father. He speaks to us truth from Jesus. And so he leads us to prayers that are powerful because we see them come to pass. Prayer is a conversation. Isaiah 56, Father God says, my house will be known as a house of prayer. Don't you find that fascinating? With all the words that he could use to describe his own house. My house will be known as a house of love. He could do, he is love. My house will be known as a house of holiness. He could do, he is holy. My house will be known as a house of, fill it with whatever you see is true of God. He could, there's so many options, but he says my house will be known as a house of prayer. That tells us God thinks prayer is powerful. Jesus was the house of God the embodiment of the temple. He says to them, he teaches them how he is the new temple, literally the new house of God. And he of course is a house of prayer. But do you know what the rest of the New Testament tells us that we are now the house of God, tells us that we as the people of God are the temple of God. And so it must be so then that what Isaiah prophesied would be true of us, that we would be houses of prayer. God, that I would be a house of prayer that people who think of me with so many words that they could use to describe me, that one sticks at the forefronts of their minds. A house of prayer. Okay. <clears throat> Let's look at a couple of things from the verses that we read. Luke 10.38 that we started. I, I believe God is inviting us to be a people of such confidence in prayer. Number one, because we're confident that he cares. So fascinating, this story of Mary and Martha and Jesus. First of all, I wanna say that Martha welcomes Jesus in. Sometimes Martha gets such a bad reputation as if she was like the terrible one and Mary's really the spiritual one. We don't see that as you track their whole story throughout the gospels, you actually see Martha is a remarkable woman of faith. And we'll talk about that in a second and what transpires in John 11 when her brother Lazarus dies is really a fascinating story. But Martha is not a terrible woman. She wants to serve Jesus. She wants to welcome him. This is a woman who, who is eager to do what Jesus wants in the way that she knows how. And so Jesus, she welcomes into her home and we're told that Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. I want us to be clear in the Greek, that does not mean proximity in that she literally sat on the floor by his feet. She might've been on the floor by his feet, but that's not what that phrase means. In the Greek, what that phrase means is that she became a disciple of Jesus. How do I know that? When Paul is describing himself as a disciple of Gamaliel in Acts, he literally says, sat at the feet of Gamaliel. That means that phrase was used of disciples. So before anyone tells me Jesus didn't have any female disciples. Not so. Luke 10 teaches us that Mary volunteers herself as a disciple and Jesus honors her. 
That's a remarkable moment for women, but that's not the purposes of this message. So let's move on. But so what is happening is Mary is focused on discipleship. Martha is focused on serving. And we're told the serving made her distracted. It was overwhelming. And then Jesus, when He talks to her, sees that it's made her anxious. Notice that as she is overwhelmed by what's happening, she doesn't go to Mary. That would have been normal. Someone in your team who's promised to do something doesn't do their job. What is the normal thing to do? other than, of course, spending some time gossiping about them because we're really good Christians and we don't really understand what we should do first. But anyway, Jesus deliver us from gossip. Now, what should we do? We go to the person. Hey, you're not doing your job. You said you would be here at 9.30 to set out the kids' banners and you haven't done it. You're not doing your job, right? That's, that's the grown-up way to deal with things. So what does Martha do? Does she go to Mary? No. She goes to Jesus and her first thing is, do you not care? This is interesting for us because actually many of us do this. When we are overwhelmed by life's anxieties, when things are not going the way we thought they would, when we feel like we've earned some credit with Jesus because we've been serving hard and things go wrong, rather than address the situation head on, often we turn to God and his motivations. We start questioning, do you not care about me? And what's interesting here is as you see the story, you see even more that many of us would use as increased reasoning that Jesus does not care and yet is meant to reveal the exact opposite. See, when Martha goes to Jesus, she says, don't you care? Tell your sister, tell my sister to help me. That's her prayer. Tell my sister to help me. And what does Jesus say? No. See, many of us, when we get a no to our prayers, equate that to him not caring. But I want us to track here for a second. Rabbis in the ancient Middle East did not speak to women. Rabbis in the ancient Middle East did not answer to women. Rabbis in the ancient Middle East did not actually in public have anything to do with a woman that was not part of their family. And even then there was a distance. Everything about this story and the way that Jesus is leaning in, engaging, and actually having a dialogue with Martha tells us he cares. He is unlike any rabbi she would ever have met. He is unlike any Jewish man she would ever have met. Everything about the way he is leaning in is telling her he does care. His no to her request is not a lack of care. It's a repositioning of her heart. I want to say to you, when you are overwhelmed with life circumstances, I know what that feels like. But let us train ourselves so our first reaction won't be questioning his affection. Everything about the way he deals with us preaches us preaches to us of his affection. Let us stand on that ground. Let us not question it. And when there will be many times that we pray for certain things and they do not happen, let us not allow the no to lead to offense against God. Let's allow the no to reposition our hearts. See, what I find beautiful about Martha is that she learns this lesson. How do I know she learns this lesson? John 11, Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus is sick and this story has already taken place at that time. And they call for Jesus to come and heal their brother. And we're told in the story, it's weird, Jesus loved them, therefore he delayed. In the delay, Lazarus dies. What had their prayer been? Come and heal him. What had Jesus' response been? No. And then we see that Jesus finally shows up a little too late in their minds. They don't know yet that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. If you haven't read the story, read it. That was a spoiler. Sorry, it's too good. But what happens is, in that moment, Martha goes out to meet Jesus. And Martha says to him, her brother is dead in a tomb. If you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. But... Even now, I know that you can do whatever you want. 
what has happened. She's understood from this moment in Luke 10, when God says no to your prayer, it's not because he's disconnected. It's not because he's disengaged. It's not because he doesn't care, but he's repositioning myself somehow. And so what happens in that moment, her brother is lying dead. Jesus has not done what she initially asked, but she's not allowing the no to cause offense in her heart. She's learned her lesson. She's allowing the no to allow her to lean in and say in faith, what are you gonna do? I know that you can do something because she's recognized no does not mean he does not care. Feel today that God wants to heal some hurts in people's hearts. Some of us are carrying deep disappointment. Like Martha, we've been so anxious and overwhelmed and what we've asked has not happened. And it's actually built a wall in our hearts against God. And today God wants to dismantle that heart of disappointment and hurt against him. He loves you. He is drawing you in to lean into him. The no or the seeming silence does not mean disconnection. It means he's leading us somewhere with him. Go with him. He is drawing out of us a confidence in prayer because he cares. Second thing I see in this story or these verses that I read is that God is drawing out of us confidence because Jesus is Middle Eastern. Stick with me here, okay? Stick with me. First of all, to say, I should have said this at the beginning. I try to say this when I'm new to a community, but um, I, um, I was born in the Middle East. I grew up in the UK. I lived in South Africa, and now I live in Boston. So if you've been trying to figure out my accent, I should have said that to you to save some time. I'm sure many of you have just spent the last 30 minutes just wondering where on earth is this woman from? There you go, that's an explanation. But I was born into a Middle Eastern family. I was born in Iran. So I understand the Bible through a Middle Eastern lens, which is a really good idea actually, because it's set in the ancient Middle East, these gospels that we're reading. And I'm really aware that actually the parables that Jesus said, especially the first one, about the friend at midnight is one of the most misunderstood parables in scripture. I want us to be really clear that the point of that parable is not perseverance. It is often taught as perseverance that is wrong because people do not understand the Middle Eastern culture. But I wanna be clear to us that Jesus says this story to expose their own unbelief or their own faulty belief about God because he's leading them to do the opposite of what this story says. Stick with me, I'll explain it. The story as we read it is that Jesus tells the story, right? Guy at midnight wakes up, he says, which of you? In the Greek, you gotta understand that when, when Jesus starts stories with which of you, it's actually almost like a, can you imagine? Can you imagine? This is the same phraseology he uses in Luke 15 when he talks about which of you, if you had 100 sheep, 99 of them are over here and one of them is left, which one of you, which of you would go after the one? The answer in that parable, by the way, is none. None of us would go after the one. It's po the point of Luke 15 is the opposite of the story to expose their hardness of heart in comparison with the kindness of God. He's doing exactly the same thing here. Which of you, can you imagine into a Middle Eastern culture that at midnight your friend comes to your house and you realize, oh my gosh, my pantry is empty. Which of you would get up and go to your neighbor's house and knock on the door and say, come help me even though it's midnight. In a Western culture, the answer is none of us. In an ancient Middle Eastern culture, the answer is every single one of us. So far, the story that he's telling them is normal. Because in the ancient Middle East, it wasn't just one person hosting a guest. The entire village's honor was, um, was uh, on the foundation of guests in any home being hosted properly. So if your neighbor comes to you to help you, to get help from you with hosting. In the ancient, ancient Middle East, you don't just go, now nah, can't be bothered. You say, absolutely. Because the whole village is united in the context of hosting. So when he's telling them, which of you would have a friend come and you don't have anything and you go to your neighbor, so far everyone's like, yeah, tracking with you, all of us. This makes perfect sense. My pantry's empty, I'm definitely gonna go get help. Even at midnight, at any hour of the night, 
Now the story becomes weird for them, but this is where we get tangled up. It's almost like when you say a word with the um, stress on the wrong syllable. Have you ever done that? When you're like reading a word, you don't really know how it's pronounced and you're like trying it out for the first time. Is it Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar? I don't know. I don't know, right? You're reading weird names in the Bible. You don't. This is what happens with us in the West when we read this parable because we put the stress on the wrong part of the story, make it the epitome of the story. It is literally the opposite of where we put the stress. So he goes to his friend. The friend says in the story, this is where it goes off track here. The friend says, I can't get up. My doors are locked and my children are in bed with me. In ancient Middle East, all of them would be sleeping in one room. Can I just say, every single listener in Jesus' day would go, oh my word, he did not say that. All of us are like, yeah, what a weirdo for coming to our house at midnight. All of them would be like, oh, this is so full of shame. This is terrible, he didn't. Or some of them would be like elbowing each other going, next time you come to me, I'm gonna say that to you, ha. Huh? It's a joke, he's making a joke. And then Jesus says, listen, even if he will not get up because he is his friend. Ooh, he is exposing in our hearts unbelief about the motivation of God's goodness to us. Because what he's trying to do is show us God would get up because he is your friend. But he says, even if he doesn't get up because of his friend, he gets up because of the impudence, because of the perseverance of the, and we all go, yes, he's teaching on perseverance. No, he is not. He is exposing their wrong beliefs about God where they thought they needed to earn something with God. And so he uses their own cultural story and he's basically exposing to them in human natural culture, you would never find a reluctant friend in your village to help you. Why then do you believe that God is less than your culture? Why then do you believe that he is reluctant? Do you see what I'm saying? So when he says, how much more? That's the point. He's saying to them, in your natural culture, you understand the village's context of honor. You would help one another. Why then do you think that God would not do that for you? Why then do you think that God would not respond as a friend, but would respond as one so reluctant that you have to keep pushing for him to be good to you? Now listen, let's understand perseverance is a biblical a biblical premise, it's taught elsewhere. You've just got to understand it is not taught here. Because perseverance, because he is reluctant, is not a biblical paradigm. He is never reluctant. If you see yourself and your prayer life as needing to be persevere, uh, persevering, because you think he is reluctant, you've misunderstood scripture. Nowhere in scripture does it tell us that he is slow or reluctant. Everywhere in scripture, it tells us that he is eager. He's exposing their unbelief and he's exposing ours. Be confident in your prayers because Jesus is Middle Eastern. Or if you find that confusing or difficult, because he is not reluctant. That's the point of this parable. The next point, the next bit, we're gonna speed up a bit. He's giving us confidence. Confidence because he cares, confidence because he's not reluctant, confidence because he is good. Jesus draws out a comparison, he's doing exactly the same thing, draws out a comparison between fathers and mothers giving food to their children. And he's doing exactly the same thing as the parable that went before about the neighbor. He is exposing their unbelief. He is showing them in normal, natural culture, you would do something good to your kids, but you believe the opposite of God. How dare you confuse the kindness of God and make it less than rather than understand that it is more than. So he says, how many of you, if your child asked you for a sandwich, would give them a snake? Or if your child asked you for some chips, would give them a scorpion. What's he saying? You guys, even though you're not perfect, know how generally not to be abusive to your children, right? This is not about abusive parents. The point he's making here is normal parents who are not abusive know to give their children food when they ask for food. And then he says, how much more your father in heaven? What's he doing? He's saying to them, 
do not accuse God of abuse and make it theology when you would clearly see that as abuse in human terms. This is when I, I help people who I'm counseling sometimes because they come from really crazy backgrounds. And sometimes people just can't figure it out because some of the abuse that they've suffered became so normal to them that they don't know how God would react to them. Will God try to smite me? Because my parents just smacked me out of nowhere whenever they could. They, they don't know how to relate to God. And I always say this to them. Think of a family that you know are not abusive. Think of kids that you like and are in your kind of world and whose parents you are aware are not abusive parents. Now then ask yourself, would it be okay if this parent, if Katya, did this thing that I think God is doing to me, if Katya did that to one of her children? That tells you whether you're misunderstanding God. This is a really great tool for you guys to use if you're not sure how God would behave. Jesus allows us to think of human parenting to teach us about godly parenting and God's fathering of us. He uses the analogy, not me. So would it be okay if Katya gave her eight-year-old son sickness to teach him a lesson? Would it be okay if I came to you all and I said, I hope you're all right, hope you're having a great day. I gave my son a fever today because he wasn't listening to me. What would you think of that? Because there's actually a mental illness where you do give your children sicknesses that they do not have. We would think abuse. Why do we accuse God then of doing that very same thing? What Jesus is doing to us is he's teaching us understand that God is better than your parenting, not worse. Just because you make it sound spiritual doesn't mean it's true. Oh, I'm struggling with this illness. I know that God is in control of it though because God gives me everything for a reason. Not true. Theologically faulty. He is not an abusive parent. Sickness comes from hell, not from heaven. Okay, let's keep moving. Oh, Jesus, help us. One last one. Confidence because he cares. Confidence because he's not reluctant. Confidence because he's good. Last one, confidence because he's not divided. This, I believe, is one of the most phenomenal theological foundations for prayer because it helps us know what to pray. Jesus casts out a demon. The onlookers, they're confused about how power works. So they associate more power with the demonic than they do with the realm of the kingdom. It, that's interesting. Many of us uh, attribute more power to demons in our lives than we do to angels, than we do to the Spirit of God in our lives. Some of us are so focused on what demons are doing that it's like the demons have more power than the Trinity put together. I just want to tell you, demons have no power when it comes to comparing against the Trinity, okay? Jesus is entirely victorious against the demonic realm. So we don't need to be worried. And the greatest power that we can see as believers is not against us from demons, but in our own communities empowered by the Spirit of God. If you're not seeing power in your life, invite the Holy Spirit. He's really good at bringing power. Okay, let's move on from that because this isn't the point here. My point is actually continuing from the one we talked about, confidence because He's good. Jesus makes the case, a divided household cannot stand. Jesus doesn't endorse the demonic and fight the demonic. When Jesus brings deliverance, it means that Jesus doesn't bring oppression. When Jesus brings healing, it means we can be confident that he doesn't bring sickness. Are you following me here? So many of us are faulty in our theology, which means we don't know how to pray in moments. Someone is dying when they are too young to die, riddled by illness, and we go, I genuinely don't know what to pray. Is God doing this? Is God sovereign over this? I wanna tell you, God is sovereign over everything. It doesn't mean he's giving everything. He just knows how to use everything. There's a difference. But when someone in your community is riddled with sickness, you must have confidence because a divided kingdom cannot stand and Jesus' kingdom is not divided. That means we can have absolute confidence in our prayers. When I rebuke sickness, I'm rebuking it based on this verse, based on the reality that a divided cross is an empty one. The cross does not allow for your healing at the same time that the realm of God is giving sickness. That is a divided kingdom. It will not stand. Sorry, I get excited. I'm Middle Eastern. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? Our prayers can have absolute confidence because we know that God says to us, what you see in Jesus is not divided. Therefore, prayer, pray prayers in line with his character. Pray prayers in line with what he did. If he did it, he's not divided against it. Therefore, you can multiply it in your own life with absolute confidence, absolute assurance. I don't know why we don't see everyone healed. I don't know. In our community, just in the last six months, we saw this remarkable miracle of someone who is connected with our community, their family members in our community, get healed of cancer, end stage terminal cancer. And yet I still have Crohn's disease in my body. Do I know why I have Crohn's disease when the cancer got healed? No, but one thing I am confident of, a divided kingdom cannot stand. It is not because somehow God is giving me Crohn's while he's healing cancer over there. That is not theologically true. And so I lean in for my healing because I am confident when I pray healing, I am praying in line with the nature of God. Let's stand together. We've been through a lot today. I want to ask you, how is your prayer life leading you? Don't be fooled by your own charisma or your own talents. Leaders, don't allow yourself to be fooled by the things that you can do in your own strength. Fruitfulness only comes from intimacy. Where is your prayer life? And for some of you, the only response you need make today is, Jesus, teach me how to pray. Teach me. I know I can't do it and I know I don't do it. Then teach me. Bring hunger to me to pray, to hear you, to talk to you, to walk with you. For some of you, you've been really questioning whether God cares. And today he wants to bring healing to deep disappointment. I can't tell you why the bad stuff that you've experienced has happened. I wish none of it had. I wish it over myself too. But I do know this, that even in the muck of life, Jesus became flesh and walked amongst human beings, bearing suffering with them. He cares for you. Don't hold him at a distance, allow him in. Lean in. He wants to bring healing to your heart today. Some of you, you've read the passage that we talked about and you're like, wow, I have believed for years that I've just got to keep persevering. At some point, I'll earn his yes. And you've realized today it's the opposite. That parable is telling you the opposite, that he is eager, that he is your friend, that he behaves as your friend, that he's not holding back until you've convinced him enough. You know that prayer and fasting is not twisting the arm of God to do something for you. He is eager to bless you. It is never about earning enough points with him. It's the intimacy. It's the conversation. It's the life that it yields in you that he's inviting you to. And so some of you, you need to repent. Repentance is not saying sorry necessarily. It's about changing the way you think. And today, some of you, you feel it. Your heart is right now just going crazy, but you know that God is inviting you to change the way you have thought about Him. Some of you, you might not even call yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus, but even now you're feeling what I'm describing because you've always thought that God is hard and judgmental and eager to punish you. If God exists, He's mean. And in this moment, you've heard something that is so different to what you thought God is like. I'm gonna tell you, God loves you. He loves you, He loves you, He loves you, He loves you. He is eager to do you good. He wants to give us a revelation of His goodness. Some of you have been so confused. Is this God? Is this not God? He's wanting to bring revelation to you. He is good. How much more allow that truth to sink into your hearts. He is better than the best parent you can think of. He is better than the kindest friend that you can think of. How much more will your Father in heaven? And He is wanting to give us extreme confidence in what we battle through. 
because we are certain that His kingdom is not divided. There are lies that the enemy has sown deep into the church. He's made them sound so theologically accurate that many Christians follow them as truth. They are not true. The kingdom of God is not divided. It is a kingdom purely of light. There are no shadows in Him, says James 1. Light is not divided. I know that there's prayer team standing around the side of the, of the auditorium here. You know, sometimes we respond in prayer and we, we just wanna stay where we are. There's, I wanna be clear, there's nothing more spiritual around this area or around the sides of the building. And I also wanna be clear that Holy Spirit is very good at ministering to you. He doesn't need a human being to be praying for you. But I also know it's true that physical responses are often very powerful in allowing revelation to be ignited in our hearts. And so I wanna invite you, if something that I've said in this message has hit home for you, there's space for you to respond to God. If you come up front, this, this is space for you to do business with God. I'm not gonna do anything up here. I promise I'm not gonna scream at you or spit on you or do anything crazy. Jesus knows how to minister to your heart, but I wanna encourage you even now as I'm speaking, this is gonna require courage and bravery. But if there's something that God has put His finger on, feel free to come up front and respond to Him. And if you want prayer, please feel free to go to these sides. These men and women have been trained in prayer ministry. They're not crazy, they love Jesus and they're sensitive to people, okay? And they'll pray with you and they'll offer you support as they pray, strength to your heart. And so we're just gonna respond. I think we can respond in a song maybe, but as the song is playing, please come up front. Listen, we've got 10, 15 minutes left. Don't wait until minute 14 and then need 75 minutes of prayer, okay? Please come up quickly, respond to Jesus. Holy Spirit, we love you. We honour you in this place.